my name is Barbara Vanderpaul, and I'd like to welcome you to the STI podcast. I am from the University of Alabama at Birmingham in the United States, and I'm here with Dermot Hurley and Monica Burrow-Skinner, and I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves and tell you who they are and where they work. So if we could start with you, Dermot. Uh, Hi, Bobby. I'm Dermot, and I'm a medical doctor. I've worked in general practice and in public health and in the developing world in India and Vanuatu. And at the time of the study, I was living in Vanuatu in the South Pacific, a small island nation in in the South Pacific. Excellent. Monica? I'm Monica Buraskina, and um, I used to work for James Cook University until the end of last year. Now I'm uh, working for Queensland Health as um, a clinician in the uh, sexual health area and I've just started the position with um, the Zurich University of Applied Sciences uh, where I teach quantitative research methods. Great, thank you. Dermot and Monica have written an article that has recently been published in STI Regarding the field evaluation of the CRT and the ACON chlamydia point of care tests, and I think that um, I personally am not a clinician, I'm a laboratorian, and I am often involved in evaluation of diagnostic tests for STIs, and so I think that it makes sense for the three of us to come together and talk a little bit about the findings of their study and then talk about what we think the implications of those findings are for the field as a whole. So um, Dermot, do you want to just summarize in two or three sentences what you think the main findings from your study were? Sure, Bobby. Well, I think the central thing is that for both of these tests, the manufacturers uh, had a stated sensitivity and specificity for the tests. And we found in our study that the performance characteristics were well below the manufacturer's stated levels. And I think also what's particularly interesting in the case of the CRT, that in fact a number of performance studies had been done and published in uh, actually four studies altogether in the BMJ, STI BMJ, and in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology. And yet with our study, we found the results be different. So that that's an interesting point for discussion. Right. And I think that one of the things, I mean, when you say that your results were different, your results were really substantially different in the less than 60% sensitivity and then specificity numbers that were really quite concerning and, and would lead you to not choose to use this, you know, for routine screening purposes for chlamydia diagnostics. I think that part of the issue that we have with this is that we rely on the information that's in the package insert. We rely on what we read in the literature. And as you just said, there have been articles already published, you know, claiming that these um, point of care tests work quite well, but that has not been your experience. And perhaps the two of you could talk about some of the reasons that you think maybe your findings are different than some of the findings that other people have seen. Sure. Well, perhaps I will lead with one and Monica could lead with another. We can speak mostly about the CRT as that's the test that was that's has been most published about. With ACON, there's a single study that was published in the insert, but there's very little information about how that was conducted. I think the difference that we found with the CRT 
was due to the organism load. And I think it's interesting that um, that previously, in the previous four studies that was co-authored or authored by the manufacturers, um, they found sensitivities, for example, of about 80%. And we found ours were 40, about 41% in men and about 75% in women. But this was related to the organism load. So clearly, for some reason, uh, our, our, our study population had a lower load. My thoughts go in the similar direction. My, 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 my main thought or suspicion is that the bacterial load, um, organism load, is the defining factor here. And um, so the population that we studied, I think, had a substantially different bacterial load than the um, population studied for the, for the other evaluations. I guess the trick is to find out why are these bacterial loads so different in these populations? I think um, the other the other take-home message that I get from this, and I think that you'll agree with me, but I'll ask you when I'm done, is that, you know, organism load is something that very few laboratories really have the capacity to measure in, in a sort mm -hmm. of consistent and standardized way. So if we say that we admit right up front that it's not going to be easy to know what organism loads are present. We could argue that maybe that should be compulsory when people are evaluating for regulatory approval of a new test. Um, but it might, you know, it's going to add expense, but that's all right, I think, if, if it's justifiable. My other concern is, though, that, you know, things change over time. And clinical trials are done in such highly regulated and controlled circumstances that we know exactly how long each specimen has been from the patient to the refrigerator to the actual test. And everything is very, very hyper-controlled. We need more evaluations like the one that you've done where we actually have people that are not necessarily paid by the manufacturer. They're using it in real-world clinical settings. They're having the people that would be doing this routinely every day running the test, and then they're analyzing the results. So then that leads us to the problem, how much weight do we give to clinical trials where the data should be strong because the studies have strong designs and are well controlled but yet are sort of artificially enhanced because they're so hyper controlled. How much mm -hmm. weight do we give to those studies versus evaluation studies? And if we want to do more independent evaluation studies, where on earth do we get the funding to do these comparisons? So maybe, maybe Dermot, you'd like to respond to that? Sure. Well, thanks, Bobby. And I think the first point is, you know, I certainly take your point about the the degree of control in manufacturers-sponsored trials. But in our study, we worked very hard to ensure all of our parameters, for example, temperature and uh, training for the nurses to use the tests, etc., were within the manufacturer's parameters. So we believe, at least I believe, that... Um, our results would have probably been found in in other laboratories, uh, in even in the developed world, with similar organism loads. But having said that, I think you bring up a very important point. Um, I'm going to make a comparison here. For example, with food, we have all, uh, we have authorities, at least in New Zealand, where I'm from, that analyze food. Independent authorities that analyze food for bacteria and toxins and so on. 
And then if there's an issue with it, the, the manufacturers make a recall and they, and they also uh, give compensation to the various people and who are affected by that. But it seems to be that we don't have that in, in health. For example, there's no independent regulation. It doesn't, there's a quality assurance mark, but it's not actually a guarantee of performance. I would say in an ideal world that um, there probably should be money made available for independent evaluations of these of these tests. And I think in particularly for for-profit companies that that money should be made available to an independent authority for uh, evaluation of these tests. So that would be my thoughts about it. Monica, do you have some thoughts on that topic? Thank you. I agree with um, Dermot. I think um, those tests, they need to be independently um, evaluated. Um, the bias, the, the, the commercial interest is just too big and I guess the, the idea that the the results would be biased is always is always there and it should just be part of the marketing costs of a test you want to you want to market a test you need to um, provide the funds to have them to have the product independently um, tested and i i would actually uh, argue um evaluated again on some sort of regular basis you know i mean i think yeah. Things do change over time. I think all of us in the yeah. STD field were caught by surprise sort of when the LCR test began to not perform the way it had yeah. originally. And, you know, eventually it got pulled from the market. Yes. But that's a yes, very, that's... very unusual case because regulatory bodies very rarely look back. Once something's approved, it's approved. And it's sort of up to us to police our own field, if you will. And that's why I think studies like the ones that you guys did are really just so important. You know, regardless of what the findings, even if your findings were exactly concordant with the package insert, I still just think they're very important studies to have done. Um, there's one other, I'm going to change topics a little bit. There's one other topic that I'm kind of interested in that you touch on somewhat. And I know that, Dermot, you have very strong opinions, and I'd like to be able to share those with everybody about... You know, we really need point-of-care tests, and we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and we don't want to say, well, these tests don't work, so I'm not going to trust any point-of-care tests. But rather, what I think we're trying to say is just be cautious and, and due diligence and try to really make sure that you know the performance of the test you're using. But then at what point is a bad test better than no test? And so this is the issue, sort of that trade-off between syndromic management which can only be used with symptomatic people versus a true screening program that can test asymptomatic people. But with sexually transmitted infections, of course, we run the risk of false positives having very yeah. negative social consequences. So we really need to understand the ramifications of what populations can we use a test that would ensure that people are treated right away but yet not cause more harm than the good that we're trying to do. So, so Dermot, I know that you have strong thoughts on that, and Monica, you may as well. So if you'd like to share those with us, that'd be great. I think if you're using, as a clinician, if you're using a test, you need to put the, the thoughts in. Uh, what is the, um, what's the prevalence of the infection or the condition in, in the population I'm, I'm dealing with? I guess that's, that's one of the first things that you should that you should know because really the sensitivity and the specificity like the positive and negative predictive value are functions of the um, sensitivity and the um, and the prevalence so um, 
unless you know what your what your prevalence is, you cannot really interpret um, the results of your test um, well. And then I guess the this knowing what the sensitivity is, I think that's beyond actually the um, the individual clinician. That's where maybe the health authorities or so could could come in and um, provide some support for the clinicians? I think that makes sense. But I mean, I think, I, I also think that there are times, you know, and, and we've seen these data where we can use a, a poorly sensitive test and still treat more people because mm -hmm. we can pick up asymptomatic infection. But we really have to worry about that specificity. And I think that's one of the things yes. that you showed in this yeah. study, oh, that yeah. these assays had low specificity as well. Yeah. We touched on this, Bobby, in our study. These tests are done on a visual signal. The very weak false positives, actually the very weak tests that read as positive were actually often a false positive. We found by eliminating those, we could take our specificity right up to 97, 98% for all tests. And in fact, in the case of the ACON to 100% with the small numbers we did, but there was a further drop in sensitivity, um, ranging from 28% through to 65%. So um, I think what's important is in the utility of point-of-care tests with STIs, which is more important, sensitivity or specificity? And uh, naturally, both are important. But I think in our case, particularly in the developing world, and particularly where you've got disadvantaged populations and women are... Um, you know, there's a high risk of adverse social consequences against women um, if they have a false positive test. As a clinician, I'm very, uh, you know, I'm very mindful of the specificity and the false positives and the risks of false positives. And towards the end of our paper, we point out that even with our very high prevalence of 27, 28% in women, with the specificities of the CRT, we would have given one in eight women a false positive diagnosis, which to me is not acceptable. Say in a population where the prevalence is 10%, you would have given one in three women a false positive diagnosis. So you've got to balance that against the risks in other diseases, for example, HIV, of not detecting the infection. How this is handled is a combination of both the performance of the test and your clinical practice. With any test, if you're giving people a diagnosis, you always have to say, uh, hold in your back of mind and communicate to the patient that there's a, there's a small possibility, or in, in some cases a larger possibility, that, that the result is negative or is false or it's not true. And you have to have contingencies, contingencies to deal with that and work with that in your clinical practice. I agree. I mean, I just, I think it's critically important, but I think that, you know, I do think that we need solutions, um, particularly for asymptomatic screening in populations that really warrant it. But I think that we don't have anything available just yet that's going to provide that solution for us, although I think there are many things on the very near horizon. So I'm very hopeful about um, STI diagnostics in general, but I, I just think that we need to continue this, this vigilance where we really um, consider carefully what we're using and consider carefully what we 
what we understand about the performance characteristics and how those those data were derived and, and do our own evaluations. So again, I'd sort of like to thank you for having done this study because I know that studies like this are expensive and time consuming and quite difficult, but I, I just think they're really worthwhile and they help all of us in the field. So anyway, hopefully people will read your article and um, make their own opinions about what you've found and do similar studies in the future. Well, thank you very much, Bobby. And I think I'd just like to say why we began this study. In fact, I went, uh, I was uh, helping out the local NGO at their sexual health clinic. I was sitting down with the nurses one day and they had these charts on the wall. And it showed there'd been a big drop-off in gonorrhea. And I said, oh, how did that happen? And they said, oh, well, we had all the samples that had come back from the laboratory <clears throat> this year been negative. And I said, well, can you really trust those? And they said, no. Then I said, well, what do you have to test for chlamydia? And they they said, "How do no, we don't have anything to test chlamydia. They didn't even have a microscope. So we thought that if we could bring in a well-performing rapid test, which the, the CRT at the time promised to be, we could actually revolutionize the treatment of chlamydia, which in the South Pacific is epidemic, really. It's, you know, often it's not uncommon to find uh, prevalences of 20 to 30% in young populations. And so this highlights the need for well-performing rapid tests, particularly in the disadvantaged and uh, poorer communities throughout the world. Right. I, and I agree. You know, there are resource-constrained settings, um, and there are resource-constrained settings even within you know, the US, the UK, other places in Europe. So just because the nation as a whole is resource wealthy doesn't mean that every population has access to those resources. And so, I mean, I think this is an important, I think this is an important point, not just for places that people often think, oh, well, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia need help with these sorts of things. But I think it's a really important point for everybody everywhere. And I think we all know about the rapid test paradox where if you can test and treat, particularly where uh, you get a low return of people coming back for treatment once their diagnosis is, is there. In many populations, you can do as well with a less sensitive rapid test as you can with a highly performing laboratory test where there's a delay in, in getting a result back. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that we all know that that that's the reality. But we still have to we still have to really be using the best rapid test possible, and the specificity does just make a huge difference. So. Monica, is there anything else you'd like to add at the end? No, I would really hope that there is more work done on um, improving the performance of the point of care tests because we do need them and we need them in um, resource poor settings and that's not just the developing world, we also need them in parts of um, the developed world, yes. All right, well thank you for your time. Okay, thanks very much.